coming back again and again to have that experience of, you know, racing with one heart and one mind with three other people that were going to succeed at all costs. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode 84, Robin Benincasa, World Champion Adventure Racer. Hello and welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Kurt Linville. Today, we have two-time world champion adventure racer Robin Benincasa. Robin holds three world records for distance paddling. I'll let her explain that. She's an inspirational speaker, extraordinaire, awesome. New York Times best-selling author. How Winning Works is her book. She was in the Eco Challenge, winning both Borneo and Ecuador. She's done 40 expedition-length adventure races. Robin has an organization called World Class Teams, and she's really excited about a new project called Project Athena Foundation. She's done nine Ironmans, and she's a professional firefighter. Wow, Robin, how do you fit it all in? (laughs) It's a little crazy. (laughs) There's way too many miles on my body, that's for sure. But it's it's the best thing in life to have adventures and inspire other people, and uh, I will never stop doing it ever, ever, ever. Well, that's awesome. Will you take a few minutes to fill in any gaps I have there? I mean, what got you started in adventure racing, for example? Um, I was doing Ironman for the longest time. I mean, I graduated college, moved out to the West Coast, and of course, everybody was either running or riding everywhere, so I needed a new sport. And I discovered triathlon, actually. And uh, so my my early endurance career was was all the Ironman races and and then um, I read about adventure racing in Runner's World one day, and I knew that the longer the race was, my, my triathlons, the longer the race was, the, the more competitive I was. And so when I heard about a sport where, you know, it was six to ten days long, I thought that might be something I was good at. I, of course, I hadn't really mountain biked. I hadn't really paddled. I didn't know anything about ropes or rappelling or ascending. Or I mean, I had to learn all that stuff. But uh, I just had a feeling that it was going to be the, the sport that I was meant to do with my genetics and, uh, and, and you know, the types of things that I love to do. So I um, took a whack at it. And my first big race was in the jungle in Borneo in, in the predecessor to the Eco Challenge called the Raid Galois in uh, Year of the Lord, 1994. Um, wow. One of the first people in the pool, yeah, in the, in the sport, and I was hooked. Well, it sounds like a lot of fun. I know that people may be familiar with the Eco Challenge from watching them on television, and I just watched a little bit, some of the clips that are on your website of uh, some of the challenges that you went through there. And I have to say, impressive, adventurous, inspirational, all of those things. So this opened up a whole new world for you. From the expedition-linked adventure races, you've gained a lot of experiences that you use to inspire others. So will you tell us a little bit about that? 
Yeah, I mean, there, you know, we're a lot of people, especially listening to this, are, are endurance athletes and they, they love doing, you know, kind of these compelling challenges. And, and that was my background as well. The, the real catch to adventure racing and what makes it so unique and inspiring in a lot of ways is that you you have to race with these three or four other teammates, depending on the rules. And, it's um, it's not relay style. So what was initially so interesting, but also such a transition for me was going from being an individual athlete to being a team person. And in the first few years, it was kind of frustrating because, um, you know, when when I was the stronger person, I would be frustrated. When I was the weaker person, I would be frustrated. <laughs> and, you know, so there was always, it was like a whole race of frustration. Uh, but then as I started racing with some of the best people in the world, and I was lucky enough to become a part of some of the top teams, that I realized that they, were, they weren't any better than anybody else out there as athletes in terms of their background or resumes. But what they were was they were better teammates. Mm. And that opened my eyes to a whole new world of how to be successful in any endurance endeavor, which is really our lives, our businesses, our relationships – was much more about um, synergy with other people than, you know, not just walking side by side, you know, together towards a common goal. It's really about how are we going to take care of each other and carry each other and, and bring each other up at our lowest moments and use our strength to be the strength for someone else and to not just be moving through our lives or our businesses with each other, but genuinely for each other. And I realized, you know, pretty quickly that that was the difference. Yes, certainly everyone was fantastic athletes. You, you certainly can't take that away. But what put my teammates on the podium for so many years um, in the sport was just their incredible teamwork and leaving their egos at the start line and doing whatever it took for each other to get across the finish line. Oh, that's really cool. So I want to dive back into this a little bit more deeper later in the show, but Let's go back to the expedition length adventure races. What does it feel like to be in a race that's that extreme that lasts for days and days and days? Uh, take us there. Let us know what that's about. Um, it's, <laughs> it's so hard to even explain. I mean, well, people finish these things. It's, it's like, um, you know, I call it reentry because it, it really feels like you've been on the moon for a week, 10 days. And you're just coming back into a world where there's warm food and beds and shelter. And, um, you know, when you undertake one of these, you are basically setting aside any um, any of the comforts that you've, you know, grown to know and love in your life, like shelter and food and sleep. And what you're giving that up for is this kind of higher level connection to others and and striving for something that no individual could ever accomplish alone and so in that way it keeps people coming back again and again because it's nothing you can get in real life that kind of we're literally moving um 22 or 23 hours a day for seven to ten days Mm. through this course and and at first people tried to not sleep but we realized that was not the good strategy because then you were lost so, you know, we discovered that you kind of need a um, one REM cycle every 24 hours, which is about 90 minutes to kind of keep your head together. And so that's sort of the formula that some of the teams developed was sleeping, you know, an hour and a half to two and a half hours every 24. But that was really it. And so 
your you know your your body is breaking down, your mind is breaking down, but you still have to get to the next checkpoint and do it right and find your way through it because you're navigating your your way through this entire course and getting each other through the course. And it's um it's it's almost like a um a religious experience in a way, you know, where it's just a whole another world than you've ever experienced in your life. It's not just about endurance. It's it's about, you know, teamwork and strategy and keeping each other in the game. And um, it's really quite an epic thing. And, and that's why all of us, even though we were, you know, broken and out of cartilage and everything else, <laughs> we just kept coming back again and again to have that experience of, you know, racing with one heart and one mind with three other people that were going to succeed at all costs. And it kind of makes you realize what some of our original like explorers and adventurers, um, you know, must have must have gone through. The nice thing for us, though, is you you have a radio and a helicopter's coming to get you. Ernest Shackleton and <laughs> and those folks didn't didn't have any of that. Um, but it's, it's nice to, you know, in a way, be able to experience some of what our our earliest real explorers did, but in a kind of an interesting competitive format. You know, Story Musgrave on our interview um, made mention of athletes like you, and he said, what I did was nothing compared to those people. I think he's generous because what he did took took humanity in a whole new direction. But I think his point is well made that when you're doing something this extreme, it takes something special deep inside. You've got to reach inside and find something that can carry you through. What was that for you? Well, obviously, you know, a lot of it is is internal drive, but at some point that's gone. Um, You know, certainly physically and spiritually and emotionally, every single person out there gets to the end of their rope at some point. And I think the, you know, the driving force is always, wow, you know, I can't let these three other people down. And, And ultimately, in the long run, I can't let myself down. And there's, I think, just this, if you really can keep putting one foot in front of the other, you have, or one pedal stroke in front of the other, or one paddle stroke in front of the other, um, you can get there. And it, it's such a, a metaphor for life in so many ways. I mean, when you come home from one of these things, you, you kind of have this feeling of, wow, nothing in my in my life for a long time I can ever say that was hard. I can't say it was hard to wake up early for this meeting or it was hard to, to put 12 hours in at the office or it was hard to you know do anything really because you always have this frame of reference. Like, <laughs> well, two months ago I was on a glacier at 3 a.m. Trying, <laughs> trying to wake up and pull my skin off the ice so I could keep running. So, you know, <laughs> this is not so bad. <laughs> but it's yeah it's such a it it um it just makes you realize how strong you really are when you have to be and um i think that a lot of people don't ever find their their edge or they don't really know what they're capable of and i think a lot of endurance athletes do um i think that's what draws us you know to to things like that is to to say, wow, I'm so much stronger than I ever dreamed. And it's so much fun to, you know, to find that out and to inspire other people to to find out how strong they really are, because we don't use much of our capacity in, in day to day life in America. You know, we don't use much of our capacity to be strong. Hmm. And, you know, I think that's a lot of the draw for all of us. So if someone wants to get started and they want to go from couch potato, right, to adventure racer, 
What's your recommendation? How can people pursue this? Obviously, you got to get into some kind of baseline um, fitness with you know just general fitness and stamina. Um, but uh, you need to learn a little bit about rappelling. You need to learn a little bit about paddling. You need to learn a little bit about mountain biking. Um, yeah, and maybe just even take like just local classes to just get a base of all those things. And then, um, you don't have to start as extreme as you had to back in, in the day, you know, it was, it was pretty much your only option was here's your 10 day race, you know, take it or leave it. But now, um, there's adventure races and, and all kinds of different multi-sport races and formats down to even like two hours where, you know, you're paddling, running, rappelling, um, orienteering. And that's another thing to, to take up, which is also really fun is orienteering where you're, you know, and they have clubs in every city in America. They have orienteering clubs where you learn to use a map and a compass and quickly chart your course and, and bag these checkpoints. Um, cause if you want to be a valuable adventure racer, two of the most important things that you can do is become an orienteer and a paddler. Those are the two things that teams need most often. But um, you can go on to USARA, which is the U.S. Adventure Racing Association, USARA.com, and um, find out where the races are in your area. And at first, you just grab a few friends and and see who loves it and see who doesn't love it. And then, you know, in the race, you discover who the other strongest people are. You look at the other teams and you look at the winners and and eventually you sort of just move your way up the, the food chain and you ask some other people to race. And, and if you're great at it, you, you can move up the food chain pretty quickly. And, you know, it's, you don't have to do the, the big crazy races anymore. I mean, a lot of people love the, you know, the 24 hour races. So it's, you know, you, you get out there on a Friday, you race Saturday, come home Sunday and you can, you know, you can be back at work, but you still have that experience of, of kind of pushing yourself with a great team. Wow. Take us to a race, a memory that you have that really impacted you, something that made you say, you know what, <laughs> I love this and I want to keep doing it. Can you tell us a story um, of one of your personal experiences? I don't know whether I was loving it at the time. <laughs> there, was <a> few <laughs> there was a, well, my first race with the best team in the world who at the, at the time were called um, Eco Internet. Um, it was a, a big race, the Raid Galois in Ecuador, and it was kind of the, the main big game in town. And it was the first time that they ever had an adventure race go to uh, a huge mountain peak. And on day three, after running for 75 miles, starting at 14,000 feet elevation, uh, we had to summit a 19,700 foot volcano active volcano so we had to go to almost 20,000 feet after minimal sleep three days into a race and we were just all an absolute disaster as you can imagine and um, we all looked pretty terrible coming into the hut at 15,000 feet where you started the climb and we were at the front of the race with the French and I was just a, a, a total train wreck I was asthmatic and I was blue and I couldn't breathe and mm. and you know, it was just such a, it, my, I mean, I was, I was falling apart, um, just my lungs and my oxygen and, and, um, I just was like, I, I can't, I can't go any higher. I mean, I had a fever. It turned out I had 102 temperature when they took my temperature later. I mean, I was just a, a mess. And, 
Um, so in the race, the we looked so bad at the front of the race that you know the the top two teams looked so awful three days in it, it, that they they changed the rules of the sport right then and there to say you know what all five of your teammates don't have to get to the top as long as three people get to the top you can continue because up until this point in adventure racing if one person wasn't able to complete the race your whole entire team was disqualified which are the, still the rules that stand today but they made an exception because it was an out and back to kind of say well you can leave somebody here at the hut but you're going to have a five hour penalty. Wow. Or take somebody halfway up to 18,000 feet, and if they need to come back down, you're you're going to have a two-hour penalty. So they, they kind of threw in some strategy at this point. But the one thing that they said is, we, you guys all look so bad that we actually need to have some kind of baseline about – you know, your level of your, your capability to climb any higher than 15 right now. So they took out an oxygen saturation device, an O2 set. And, um, and right there, they made a rule uh, at 1am as we were about to go out the hut, which was the first, you know, gate that was open for climbing. And it was just the two teams that were in the hut. And they said, you know, you have to have an oxygen saturation of 71% or more to continue. And, you know, being a, a firefighter EMT, I know that, you know, when someone has an O2 set that's like 92 or less, we're taking them to the hospital with lights and sirens. So, you know, it was it, it was crazy on their part to even say 71. So both teams are leaving the hut at 1 a.m. to start the, the summit. And everyone's O2 set is, is a mess, like early 90s, late 80s, mid 80s. And then I put my finger in the O2 set and it said 71%. Oh, yeah. So now it was confirmed by everyone that I was certainly not fit to keep climbing. And, you know, much less, I didn't even know if I could keep living where I was standing at that point. <laughs> and um, and so I looked at my teammates and, and, you know, of course, I didn't want to get the five hour penalty, even though I'm dying. I was still competitive. So I, I said, well, Hey guys, you know, we're going to be strapped up for glacier travel anyway. Maybe you guys can just drag me to 18,000 feet. So we only have the two hour penalty. <laughs> oh, no. and, so, and so they said, okay, so we got rigged up for, you know, glacier travel, which everyone had to be anyway, but I rem- you don't, don't remember much of those next several hours. Cause it was sideways hail. It was dark. I had a huge fever. I couldn't breathe. And they were literally dragging me up this mountain. God bless them. And so at 18,000 feet, I thought I was going to go back down. It was the sun had just come up and, and everyone's sort of milling around at this checkpoint. And I'm thinking about how I'm going to get down. And this was sort of the moment that kind of changed my, my whole career. I mean, at this point I was thinking I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be racing with the best team in the world. They shouldn't have picked me. It was a mistake. I'm not good enough. And I'm in the snow and I'm like crying and eating my cookie. And I'm wondering how I'm going to get back down. And my friend Robert Nagel came over. He was team captain, and he uh, put his hand on my shoulder, and he said, you ready to go, Rob? And I said, I, I don't know how I'm going to get down, Robert. And he said, oh, no one's told you yet. Like, what do you mean no one's told me yet? What's what's happening? He said, well, the doctor at the checkpoint is saying that John, who is John Howard, um, another of the, like, the greats of the greats, amazing man, um, he said, the doctor's telling John Howard and I that we have high altitude pulmonary edema. Oh no. And he's telling us we have to go down said. So the only way for us to stay in the race is if you go up. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. 
And I mean, talk about a complete mental turnaround, you know, and, and he looked right at me and he said, you can do it, Rob, you can do this. And because he believed, I believed, like, I, I was like, well, if the best guy in the sport believes maybe, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe he's right. Maybe I can do this. And the man, like, like in that moment, like literally changed my whole life, like my whole perspective of myself, my whole um, being like you actually see in, in the video at that point that I stand up and I start nodding my head. Yes, yes. Like just all the nonverbal cues was that I was I was going up and I believed that I could do it. And and uh, he and John went back down and we got the four hours of penalties and and myself and the other two guys went up and summited it at 19,000, you know, 700 feet. Um, still just ahead of the, just ahead of the French. And, um, it, it, it was just kind of the reason that I bring up that story is it just shows you the, the power of the mind and the power of great leadership. You know, when someone really believes in you that much, you know, believes in you so much that they convince you, you know, that, that, you can do this. And when they give you that, um, that challenge and that respect to say, you know what, the best people in the sport aren't going to be able to pull this off. It's up to you now. And, and when you allow someone to rise to the occasion like that, um, just the power of that. And, and literally in that moment, I went from being kind of a, a, a girl from sea level who didn't even think I was going to make it through the day, much less through the race and, and win the race um, you know, and that I didn't belong there. Suddenly I started thinking like, I, I belong here. This is my team. These, you know, this is, this is the level in the sport at which I belong. And it happened like literally over a span of 30 seconds. Mm. Um, what a and, transformation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, amazing. And we went on to, I mean, obviously it was, it was nine days for the win that race, like literally nine days for the win. And, um, and we finished just a couple hours ahead of the French. Wow. Let's talk car racks, specifically Yakima and Thule. Chances are, if you're listening to our show, you either have one, want one, or you're going to need a car rack soon. Car racks, whether on the roof or on the back, need a good set of locks to keep your gear locked down to the rack and to your car. Good news. Our new sponsor, Z-Lock, has new lock sets for all Thule and Yakima racks at about one-third less than anywhere else. These lock cores are sourced from the original manufacturer and include bonus keys. Need replacement keys or cores matched to your current lock code? Z-Lock has replacement options even if you've lost all of your keys and don't know your key number. Check this out. Z-Lock is offering Adventure Sports Podcast listeners an additional 20% off their already low prices plus free shipping. Just enter the code ADVENTURE at checkout and you'll save up to 50% off a of retail. Go to zlock.com forward slash adventure. That's Z-E-L-O-C-K dot com forward slash adventure and save. If you're thinking about your future, think about Fort Lewis College in Durango, Colorado. Think a beautiful mountain campus where hiking, biking, kayaking, and snow riding are right outside your door. Think a friendly community buzzing with music, arts, events, and sports. 
Think faculty mentors, real research, and professional experiences that prepare you to both make a living and make a life. If you think college should be an adventure, think Fort Lewis College. See for yourself at fortlewis.edu. That's a remarkable story. There are people all over the world who need that turnaround. They need, mm-hmm. they need someone to affirm them to the point that they say, I can, I will. Mm-hmm. And that's my favorite thing. That's my favorite thing in the world to, to do is to give that gift that my guys gave me for so many years. You know, in the Adventure Sports Podcast, one of our major themes and purposes is to try to encourage people to go out and challenge themselves and find out what they're made of and to take the lessons learned back to everyday life so that they can live richer, fuller, bigger lives. And mm-hmm. this is a perfect example. It's just amazing. And you don't have to do an adventure race for 10 days. <laughs> no. you know? Nobody, who, who would do that? That's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> You, you know, to gain these lessons, it has to be something that is just your own personal enlargement, your own personal experience, you know? Yeah. And so for some people, that's a walk around the block. Yep. You know, and uh, more power to them. Do it, right? Yep. Whatever it is that's a big challenge for you on the day, some days the big challenge is just getting out of bed and, and going to work and doing it. But you know what? You challenged yourself. And it, I think it's just so important for to challenge ourselves because you could have all the money in the world and all the things you ever wanted, but if you don't have a passion for something and you don't challenge yourself and you're not proud of yourself and you don't feel good about what you accomplished at the end of the day, it's you're not fully living. Since that time, you've had some of your own personal challenges and you've overcome them to set world records. So you developed arthritis in your hips. And this changed your life. Tell us what happened there. Um, Well, I I thought I had, like for the longest time, I thought I had pulled a hip flexor. And I was still, you know, running through it and racing through it. And I was like, this is just weird. You know, my hip flexor, I just pulled it. And I'm like for seven months, I just thought I had this pulled hip flexor. And um, then we were in the world championships in Scotland. And... I literally got to the point where my leg wouldn't move anymore. I mean, it was just in so much pain in there because there was zero cartilage that I was at that, that, you know, bone scraping against bone and my body literally wouldn't let me do it. And I had no idea what was going on. I thought, well, there goes my hip flexor. I just completely pulled it and now my leg won't come forward anymore. And I spent the last few days of the race like manually pulling my leg forward with my hand and having my teammates tow me and carry my stuff to the finish line, it was awful. Um, and I went home and, and got an x-ray, and it was literally the, the first moment I ever went to a, a doctor about it or you know an orthopedic surgeon about it. He just like popped up the x-ray and said, hey, yeah, look at this. You're out of cartilage, both hips, none left. Wow. Yeah, this is mm. – you're never – you're probably never going to run again. And and, uh, I mean, you know, that was another life-changing 30 seconds, you know, just like, wait, what? You know? um, and so, you know, 
he said, well, you're going to need both your hips replaced. And I was like, nah, just give me some 800 ibuprofen. I'm good. I'll see you like <laughs> in a couple of years. And he's like, you're going to see me in a couple of weeks. <laughs> and we, and I left, you know, I'm like, goodbye. See you in a few years. And he's like, see you next week. And, um, you know, it just, cause he just knew how long it was just going to take to sink in, you know, that it was, I just felt like, like a, just a German shepherd when their hips go bad. Like you like literally like couldn't, Everything was locked up. I couldn't move. I couldn't sleep. I woke up in just ripping pain every night. And I knew I had to, I mean, I had to have my hips replaced. And and uh, so I had my first one done in 2007. Um, my second one done in 2009. And um, at another race, of course, I hit the deck. And that was when I ran out of curlage on the other side. And my teammates had to drag me to the finish line. Um, and, uh, so it was, and, and yada, 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 over the last six years, I've had four hip replacements and two cup replacements. Um, and they're, they were all just the gnarly surgery where they have to dislocate your leg to get in there and work on it. So, um, it, it was, a it's been hard, but at the same time, it also led me to some really cool, different things in my life. Um, you know, when faced with, you can't do the other stuff you loved, I just said, well, I'm going to find some new stuff I love then. (laughs) Well, you went on to set three world records paddling. What an inspiration. Tell us about these three records. Um, well, so yeah, I got a, my first wild hair was to see if I was a, any kind of a decent paddler because mostly in adventure racing, you're in, in double kayaks. And I was racing with some really top Aussies and Kiwis and just great paddlers. So we were we were always one of the best paddling teams in a race. But I always assumed it was the guys, you know, that were kind of providing the power in the back there. Um, But but I always felt like I liked those sections of the races. And it was probably because we were fast. But I was like, well, maybe maybe I can try being a paddler. So um, I took a whack at um, my first big race was uh, my first big solo race was um, the Yukon River Quest, and it was a race from Whitehorse to Dawson City down the Yukon River, 460 miles, and uh, it was kind of during the summer, so it was sort of the midnight sun thing, which was pretty cool, and I loved it, loved, 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 loved. Okay, well, you know, it sucked in parts, obviously, but (laughs) at the end of the day, (laughs) I mean, I I loved it because I was good at it. And, and I did really well. And so I started, you know, realizing that I might have a, a, a seventh sport career here, um, in, in ultra distance paddling. So then I, I did the Missouri river 340 and, um, and absolutely loved it. The, the MR 340 is the, the longest, um, nonstop paddling race, um, in the world, actually, it's for, uh, 340 miles down down the Missouri, but it's completely nonstop. Whereas the Yukon, they make you take one seven hour break. And um, and I I discovered a, a talent that I never I never even knew that I had. My first MR340, thankfully, and it was a very very cool thing. And I was so surprised. Um, I set the women's course record. And so I was like, well, maybe I got something here. You know, I was like just really excited to at my age and with my metal hips to have a brand new sport that I was good at. Um, so then I started taking wax at, at 24 hour records and was able to get the 24 um, hour flat water Guinness record and then the 24 hour moving water 
Guinness record. And, um, and then a year and a half ago, I set the 24 hour stand up flat water paddling record. And uh, it's just been fun. You know, it's just been a fun thing to do to, to kind of introduce, um, the sport of stand up to, to ultra endurance or, or, or kind of following the footsteps of a couple other guys that started going down this ultra endurance road, um, you know, in the stand up world. And then, and then in the, in the kayaking world to, um, to kind of throw down the challenge to, and that's the fun thing about the Guinness 24 hour records is, you know, it's not where people gather and, and all do it at the same time. Like someone might take a whack at it in China tomorrow or in Germany um, so it's one of those things where you, you apply to Guinness and they, they look at your course and they tell you whether, okay, that's a flat water attempt, or that's a moving water attempt, or that's an open water attempt, depending on the body of water. And then they have all kinds of things that you have to, boxes you have to check and, and documentation you have to provide and all these witnesses. And so it's kind of a, a neat way to start a, or to have a worldwide competition, um, you know, where, you know, in your own backyard. So, so that's, individually. An individual yeah. worldwide competition. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty cool. Yeah, it's it's fun. I had a friend introduce me to, to doing those because he held all the all the world records in, in kayaking. So I started following in his footsteps and we started setting them together. Like he'd set the men's or he'd attempt the men's and I'd attempt the women's at the same time. And and it's been uh it's been a, a hoot. And I think two of the three records still stand currently. Um and uh and you know, so that's that's a fun thing for me is to to have discovered a strength as a paddler. But, um, of course the other neatest thing that the, that the crazy hip setback led me to was the best thing I've ever done in my life. And that's, um, start a nonprofit called project Athena. Yeah. You know, I was just getting ready to say you've already inspired us with amazing comebacks, setting world records after four hip replacements. And now you, uh, you do inspirational speaking. You're a New York Times bestseller for how winning works. And you started Project Athena. Tell us about Project Athena. I was really kind of inspired by a great friend of mine who is like one of the world's best ultra endurance athletes. Uh, a lady named, you know, in multi-sport. Her name's Louise Cooper. And she is 61 now and she will kick all of our asses. Day in, day out, around the block, any sport, you pick it, she will beat you if it's an endurance race. I mean, she's <laughs> unbelievable. And not only that, but she's the nicest person on earth. And not only that, she's a, a two-time breast cancer survivor. And after her um, first kind of bout back in, in 98, I was truly inspired by her and her approach to um, not only her treatment, but her recovery and the fact that every single day, no matter what it was, she got out of the house and kept her routine. And, and when she couldn't run, she walked. And when she couldn't walk, she rode her bike. And when she couldn't ride her bike, you know, she just went to the end of the driveway and back. But every single day she um, she did her thing. You know, she never let that that athletic side of her life go. But most importantly, she always put some huge, big, hairy, audacious adventure on her calendar, like a year away, so that in her mind, she wasn't, you know, just having her chemotherapy treatment. She would be having her chemo and thinking about the day she was going to stand on top of Everest or the day she was going to cross the finish line at the Marathon de Saab or, you know, one of some crazy big thing she was going to do. And so after I started having my hips replaced, 
um, kind of inspired by her, that's when I said, well, I'm going to be a paddler. I'm going to go do the Yukon River Quest and I'm going to do the MR340 so that in my recovery, I didn't need to run because I was a paddler now, you know, and, and, I, and I had all these other great things to do. So um, based on kind of that inspiration, the idea came to me that, well, maybe we can do this for other people, you know, it, and it's it started out to be other women like to say, Yes, you're a survivor of a medical or traumatic setback, but we're going to provide this great environment for you where it's not about the setback, it's about the comeback. And we want to provide this great comeback party for you in the form of uh, an endurance, usually an endurance-related adventure, often multi-sport, which is our background, so we're good at coaching it. And, and, you know, just in a way that will really help you inspire and amaze yourself again and your friends and family so that they're not worried about this weak person. They're suddenly going, holy badass. You know, like my, my wife, my mom, my sister, my friend is, you know, not only a survivor, but they're this amazing kick-ass person that's doing these things I wouldn't even dream of. And, and that really gives the survivors a charge to be like, that's right, man. I'm I'm not just a survivor. I'm going to do this thing that that most normal people would never dream of, and it's going to be my signal to the world that I'm back and I'm better than ever. So, what we basically do in in, in tagline form is we help survivors live an adventurous dream as part of their recovery. And um, so, each year we have six adventures that we take survivors and fundraisers on. About a third of the field are survivors, and the other two thirds of the group are our fundraisers, which we call our gods and goddesses, and our survivors are Athenas. And um, there are things like um, we have a hike called the Harbor to Harbor, where we hike from Oceanside Harbor to San Diego Harbor down the, the California coastline, 50 miles in two days. So, you're hiking mm-hmm. a marathon a day for two days. Wow. And, then we have um, the Grand Canyon Rim to Rim, where we hike all the way across the Grand Canyon in one day. And we have the Rim to Rim to Rim, where we hike all the way over in one day and all the way all the way back the next. Um, and then one of our really popular adventures is we call it the Florida Keys to Recovery, where we start in Key Largo and we kayak and bike ride each day, um, 40-ish miles or so, and three days later end up in Key West. So we kayak and ride 120 miles from Key Largo to Key West and camp on the beaches. Um, and then we also have next year a Santa Barbara 24-hour adventure race where we're going to all stay together and navigate together and paddle and ride um, for 24 hours in Santa Barbara. So they're all these, like, these adventures that that are are crazy and your family shakes their heads but at the same time we train you and they're totally doable for you know for non ultra people just for regular cool people um are doing these things and and my my friends like Louise and I are their trail angels and we train them and facilitate their success and make sure we're all doing as a team whatever it takes to get everyone across the finish line For 20 years, Bent Gate Mountaineering has been outfitting climbers, skiers, backpackers, and outdoor enthusiasts with the gear they need. Whether climbing an 8,000-meter peak or buying your first backcountry ski setup, Bent Gate is here to help. 
Bentgate is continuing to offer free BC 101 sessions this winter, teaching backcountry ski boot and binding setup, avi safety and beacon practice, clothing systems, and tips and tricks to make your days more enjoyable. If you don't own the gear, Bentgate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment. Bentgate also has free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a chance for hands-on experience. Be sure to check Bentgate.com for our full product selection as well as updates on all these events. This episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast is brought to you by 180TAC.com. 180TAC manufactures premier backpacking and emergency products. Whether you need a backpacking stove for your week-long trek on the trail or an emergency stove for your bug-out bag, we have the tools you need. Visit www.180tack.com. In some of your motivational speaking that I heard online, you told a story about when you were on one of the adventure races and your team captain, you're getting ready to run and the team captain says, okay, everyone empty your packs. Mm-hmm. And it was that, that kind of teamwork. Explain what that was about for us. Well, it was sort of the, the first time that, well, that I was, I was aware of, you know, it was the first time I raced with the best team in the world, but, um, Right before the start line, our our team captain basically kind of said, you know what, everyone's carrying their own mandatory gear, but I have a a different idea of the way we're going to work this. And he started taking some of the weight from from some of the the slower runners, myself included, you know, started taking some of the weight, like our climbing gear, our extra shoes, anything like that, and, and giving it to the two stronger runners. And it was kind of the first time I was aware of of people not just carrying their own individual gear and and kind of doing the the commonly understood version of teamwork, which is walking side by side towards a common goal. He had a whole different idea of the way we were gonna we were gonna do this, and he basically took the bulk of the weight, handed it to the two strongest runners, and and I was just standing there with a water bottle. And, you know, we weren't really sure how this was going to work, but it, it turns out that it was absolutely, uh, you know, a stroke of genius because it wasn't just, you know, a world where everyone just looked out for themselves. He was kind of saying, well, now we're all responsible and accountable for getting each other across the finish line. And and in that world where you're caring about the three or four other people around you almost as much as you care about your own performance – I mean, it's amazing because whereas every other team had one person caring about their each of their own success, on our team we had five people caring about five people's success and looking out for each other. And when someone was struggling, we'd take more of their weight. Or if someone was strong, um, we discovered a cool way to make a little tow line, like a little a little. Um, one of my teammates cut a piece of bungee cord off the netting in the back of his backpack and tied it to the bottom of his backpack and made a little tail. So there's like a bungee cord tail off the bottom of his backpack so that if someone was struggling, instead of stopping to to swap out weight, the person struggling the most could just grab onto the tow line and, and be pulled along with the strongest person. And, you know, throughout the entire race, we kept doing that over and over, shifting weight, tow lines, encouraging each other. Um, and, and 
we discovered really, you know, in, in that race and in, in that kind of yearish, um, you know, the importance of not just being a bunch of world-class individuals who very often didn't get to a finish line, regardless of their talents. It, we realized that, yeah, you got to be a strong athlete, but the most important thing is to be a strong teammate and to have the entire team, you know, there not just with each other, but for each other. And just that tweak in thinking um, is what made us world-class adventure racers for years and years and years after that. Um, we were never the best athletes. We were all in our 40s and 50s, and we were, came from all over the world, and, and we never even trained together. But it was really just that mindset of, of I'm going to take care of this person next to me. I'm going to care about them as much as I care about myself um, that, that changed everything and got us through every challenge and got us through every low point. And I mean, there, there was almost nothing that could keep us from crossing a finish line in, in, at the top of the pack. I mean, maybe not first, but, you know, kind of in the top five because we slowed down less than any other team did. I mean, all the other teams had to wait for their slowest or most broken person. And we just took ours with us. Mm, that's that's remarkable. Now rewind to Project Athena. Yep. It's this type of teamwork that allows people, I think, to be really successful when they're overcoming their own challenges. And I'm sure that you're applying mm -hmm. that in Project Athena. Totally. And and that's kind of the neat thing. Like I, I show some some of our adventure racing clips in in my presentations that I do for companies and. Um, a lot of our gods and goddesses, our fundraisers come from those audiences. And so it's neat because they've gotten to kind of hear about it, but then they get to experience that world themselves where everyone's ego is at the start line. Nobody cares if you're the strongest one. Um, everybody cares if you're, you know, the most challenged one at the time. And we all travel as a pack and there's no, um, there's no negativity about weakness. It's it's everyone just kind of gangs up on it and and fixes it. People feed you. They they help you drink. They take some of your water till you're recovered, and then you help them later. Um, and and a lot of people haven't been in that world, um, and and so that's why people keep coming back is because they don't have that same world. Maybe even in their own family or in their place of business. Um, and and many people try to bring that energy and vibe back to you know, back to their families and businesses. And um, it's just a really nice place to be that a lot of people haven't experienced before. And um, and that's why we love it so much. Mm. I, yeah, I love the concept, the concept that we're stronger together than we are apart and the things that can be accomplished as a group that maybe we would not be able to do individually. It's, it's beautiful. Yeah. And, and when nobody cares who gets the credit and when nobody cares who the strongest person is like it's funny because we've you know we've had people like in the grand canyon who are very wrapped in wrapped around the axle with their ego and they have to be the first person to the other side and there we've had a couple one or two people go off the front and just just disappear because they had to prove how strong they were and they just miss the entire experience not only that um you know, we could have used their, their strength. You know, you can, you can get your ego fulfilled by taking your strength and helping somebody else instead of just going off the front. You're going to get just, you're going to get even more credit 
than just being the strong person going off the front. You're going to feed your ego even more if you go to the back and help that person because everyone's going to see how awesome you are. And I, I can't, it, it hurts my brain sometimes when I see somebody walking off the front going, well, they're not only missing experience, they're also missing a moment to get what clearly they need, which is recognition. Mm. Um, they're missing that moment too, you know, to, to really be recognized by the group for how awesome you were in helping somebody else. And, and why wouldn't you, um, you know, if, if you do have to satisfy an ego, why wouldn't you wrap your ego around the team's success and the group's success and helping somebody else than just getting there first? Because that doesn't that doesn't do anything for the group. And in fact, like those people are are so far not a part of the group that um, even later they they, they the group hasn't bonded with them. And um, I actually had somebody come back once because they went off the front the first year and said, I feel like I missed everything. I feel like I missed everything that you guys had together. And I want to be part of that. And it was actually a girl. And so she she had the experience the second time around. But, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you don't necessarily have to leave your ego at the start line, but wrap your ego around helping somebody else, your team's success, getting that kind of recognition and not just getting there first. Well, Robin, you know what? In the end, when one is alone, trophies make very poor company. Hell yeah. I love that. Yeah, that's true. Yep. They got there first and then they had to sit there and be hungry until the van came an hour later. (laughs) (laughs) They got squat. Exactly. Well, I am sure that our uh, listeners could get a lot more of this sage advice if they picked up your book, How Winning Works. Um, do you have any promotions or special discounts for us? Um, yeah, I mean, if if you want to email me, I will send uh, anybody out a book at my cost, just plus shipping, so about $12. Um, I will send you out How Winning Works. Uh, so shoot me an email, and, and I will have my... Um, my person that ships out stuff, get a hold of you and, and make sure they have the right address. And then if you're on one of our Project Athena adventures, the website is projectathena.org, projectathena, like the goddess, .org. And um, you can sign up for to be a god or a goddess, or if you know a survivor, we can help. They can apply also on projectathena.org and sign up for one of our adventures. And if you mention, um, how did you hear about us? If you mention the podcast with Kurt, um, that is the way that you found out about us. We will um, take $250 off the amount of money that you need to raise to come on an adventure, which for most of our adventures is 3000 And we cover all your expenses aside from your flight. So we cover your food, your hotel, your transportation, your campground, whatever it is. Um, and all you need to do is land in the airport that we tell you to land in. And we do everything else for you, rental equipment, housing, everything. So uh, we would love to have you come on an adventure with us. And if you mention this podcast, we will. Um, you only have to raise $27.50 instead of the 3000 Right on. So just mention the Adventure Sports Podcast, and you're going to fix them up. Yep. That's great. Well, thank you for that. Now, I've got to throw something your way that's going to be tough for you, but what is the coolest thing you've ever done? Hmm. Wow. Gosh, I know it hurt my brain right there. Uh, <laughs> well, all right. So this is something that not a lot of people know if they follow Eco Challenge. But the the last night of the Borneo Eco Challenge, um, we paddled all night to the finish line, and it was just this epic, epic moment of of being afraid we were going to be caught, but also feeling. Like we were in the front of the world championships, the biggest race in the world. It was a beautiful night. 
Um, it was, you know, we, we felt strong that we were on course and that we had a good chance to win. And just that incredible feeling was, was amazing. But then one of my teammates started shifting around a lot in the boat. Like he started like scratching and shifting and throwing his paddle down and, and we're like, Isaac, what are you doing? What's going on? And he's like, I'm just so itchy. Oh, Cause we, we're wearing the same, you know, spandex, lycra, whatever, race tops, like for, for now five days, you know, in and out of the salt water, in and out of the bat guano, in, in and out of the mud, the leeches, oh. the rivers. We, we all had leptospirosis, which we didn't know till the next day. And so we're all a mess, but he was so itchy and uncomfortable. And then all of a sudden we hear him going, oh yeah, that's better. That's, oh yeah, that's, that's much better. Like Isaac, what are you doing? And so I turn around, I have my headlamp on, I turn my headlamp on, Isaac is buck naked in the boat. Like <laughs> he had taken off everything. So, so literally we all look back and we're like, Ike. And he's like, you guys, I'm telling you, this is so much better. And the next thing you hear is the three of the rest of us throwing our paddles down in the boat and we're, we're all like, <laughs> oh, no. took off everything. So we could just like feel the cool night air, you know, and it was like the most epic feeling like in my entire life to not have that nasty lycra disgusting thing on anymore and to just have this cool air over all my sores and leech scars and and we paddled all night to the finish line completely naked <laughs> well, that is a true example of less is more i tell you <laughs> we, we put on our jerseys for one of the checkpoints and <laughs> but that was it <laughs> Well, that's a that's a new angle on extreme sports for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, that's fantastic. Well, Robin, thank you very much for your time today. Your stories are amazing. You are an inspiration to me, and I know that you inspire many others. Um, once again, can you give us your email address and how people can get in touch with you? Yep, it's Robin R O B Y N at projectathena.org. Robin at projectathena.org is my email. Um, my personal website is worldclassteams.com, worldclassteams.com. And uh, the book is How Winning Works. And to come on an adventure, you go to projectathena.org. That's all the ways you can get in touch. <laughs> right on. So, I first looked for How Winning Works as an audiobook because obviously I love audio. I'm a podcaster, right? I didn't yeah. find it. Is it is it going to be an audiobook? That's a fantastic question. Hmm. I guess it will be at some point. <laughs> <laughs> right on. I'm glad to hear it. Well, I know that it's available everywhere else that people want to look. And if they email you, then they can get the cost plus shipping version, which is even better. Yep. Yep, right we'll send it out. Well, Robin, thank you again for your time today. Thanks, Kurt. That was fun. And thanks, everyone who listened. Until our next podcast, everyone, get out there, challenge yourself, find out what you're made of, and have some fun. Woohoo! <laughs> right on. See you out there.